Good evening. I was uh, about 30 seconds away from being the first person to preach in this church in shorts, but I decided against doing that. Um, yeah, <laughs> someone said thank you. Not sure how to take that, Matt. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> If you would, uh, there's no good segue. If you would open up your Bibles in, uh, to uh, Philippians, uh, we're going to be uh, bouncing around quite a bit in chapter one. And in, in point of fact, the last time I stood up here, I did what I thought was concluding Philippians chapter one. And uh, but I realized the more I thought about what I was, I wanted to say tonight, the more I realized I got to go back and do one more. One more. Um, now, in my defense, if you ask any person who preaches expositorily through a book of the Bible, they will say one of the hardest uh, issues to deal with is not what to say, but what not to say. There's always more content than you have the ability to, you know, put in a, a given point in time. Maybe it doesn't quite fit the flow, whatever. And that's kind of an occupational hazard for preachers. You deal with it, you move on. But in this particular case, the more I thought about it, the more I realized there is something that we really need to go back and look at together before we can conclude Philippians chapter 1. And, and what I mean by that is, is relatively simple. Paul, in writing this letter, is in captivity. He is suffering persecution that has resulted in his imprisonment, and he is writing this letter to a church that is likewise suffering. Um, the church at Philippi is uh, an exemplar of the, of the Great Commission. This is a church from the very first day that they heard the gospel, that they believed that they were saved. They have thrown themselves into not only supporting Paul, but they have caught also that grand vision of the redemptive work that God is doing in the world through Jesus Christ that Tim talked about this morning in Isaiah. They've caught the vision of that, and they have thrown themselves into evangelism and missions. And just as the devil is doing everything in his power, everything that he is permitted to do to take Paul out of the game, off the board, so too is he attacking this particular church. And so Paul's letter to this persecuted church, he emphasizes three things. He keeps coming back to three areas of emphasis in order to comfort and sustain them in whatever suffering they're experiencing in that persecution. And he does it sometimes explicitly, he does it sometimes implicitly, and occasionally he twists himself into sort of confusing verbal knots, trying to bring out these areas of emphasis in the text. And because he keeps returning to them, it indicates that he really wants this church to see that these are three foundational realities that they can and should rest their confidence in when they're suffering. And so tonight, we're going to finally conclude chapter one by looking at those three areas of emphasis and seeing what Paul wants the church at Philippi to see. And as you can tell from the title of the sermon, I, uh, I've titled this Three Helps in Hard Times, and my outline is simple. We're going to identify each of those helps. We'll see kind of how Paul brings it out, examples of how he brings it out in the chapter, and then we'll talk about how each of those are applicable when we're undergoing the valleys of life. But before we do that, let's ask the Lord for his blessing on our time tonight. Oh, Lord, please, as uh, we, we spend this time together, Lord, give me the right words to say the way that would, in a way that would be helpful, edifying, encouraging, and accurate, Lord. Let all of us hear these truths, Lord, and uh, be fertile soil for them. May we walk away edified and encouraged and Christ glorified. That's in his name we pray. Amen. 
All right, so three helps in hard times. And, and one, one quick disclaimer as we jump into this. I re- realized as I was writing this that there is a potential application misunderstanding. Um, so I want to address that at the, at the outset. Um, I've said that these are, these are three helps in hard times, but in the context of Philippians, there's a very specific hard time that the church is going through, namely persecution. And I could see someone kind of thinking that maybe that means that these helps are helps in suffering for the gospel times, but not the general difficulties that we experience in life. And so in a desire to see no one be confused, I want to say at the outset, these helps are helps in any hard time and not just in persecution. The three emphases Paul makes are applicable whenever we're going through something difficult. Uh, but that said, let's jump into the first of these three helps, which is the gracious sovereignty of God. The gracious sovereignty of God. Our first help in hard times is the gracious sovereignty of God. And that's not just that God is in control, but that his control is a very good and very gracious control. And Paul peppers this theme all throughout the chapter. um, And we'll we'll look at a few. uh, Verses 3 and 4 is where we'll start. He says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. This is Paul beginning his letter thanking God for this church's partnership in the gospel. And as I've already said, this church is an exemplar of the Great Commission. They have taken it seriously from the first day that they have believed themselves. They have thrown themselves into regional evangelism, missionary work, and the supporting of Paul in his missionary efforts. And Paul begins by thanking God for those efforts. He begins setting the tone of the letter by reminding this church where due credit goes. Next, in verse 6, Paul also emphasizes God's sovereignty. He says, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. And that phrase, good works, refers to everything that God is doing in the life of the church at Philippi. God began this good work in them. He brought the gospel to them. He saved them. He gave them their passion for evangelism and their zeal for missions. And he made them zealous supporters of Paul. God started it. And verse 6 tells us that God is also going to finish it. And if God begins it and if he ends it, that means he's doing the middle part as well. Everything that this church is doing, everything that they're participating in, especially in the context of their persecution, it's all of God. It's all of him. It's all from him. The salvation of these believers, how they function as a local body, and their part in the Great Commission is all a good work of God. And that's already, in the first few verses of the chapter, a lot of sovereignty, but he keeps going. Take a look at verse 7. There, Paul twists himself into probably the first verbal knot in the chapter, trying to hammer home the fact that God is in gracious command over everything that happens. In verse 7, he says, It is right for me to feel this way about you all, referring to what he just said, Because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. So in this verse, Paul begins by saying, I hold you in my heart, which is another way of saying, I love you. I have affection for you. I feel for you. And then he gives him the reason, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. What Paul's getting at is he loves them because of their support of him. They are supporters of him in his current situation. They are standing in solidarity with him. He has real physical needs that they have met. And this letter is ultimately a thank you note to them for the support that they have given him. 
But he doesn't frame it that way, does he? He doesn't say, uh, uh, it's right for me to feel this way about you, for you are supporters of me, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. No, he says, you are partakers of grace with me in those things. He takes what is generally a simple thought, and he actually makes it a little less clear in order to emphasize that this church's support of Paul and Paul's receiving of this church's support is all a gracious gift from God, all a gracious work from God. He wants to leave no doubt in anyone's mind that God is sovereign and that he kindly uses us as the means by which he accomplishes his designs. And there are others in the chapter, but skip down to verse 28 to 30. This is, this is an important one in the context of what's happening of the, uh, it, to this church. But Paul says, starting in verse 28, Be not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you for the sake of Christ that you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. So in this particular chunk of text, Paul is giving instruction to the church about how they should react in light of the persecution that they're enduring. And Paul begins by telling this church to not be frightened by anything their opponents might say or do. And then he says that the situation is a sign, it is a testimony to all involved. And that, that connection between those two sentences is the first hint of sovereignty in these verses. Why is it that they should not be afraid? After all, there's a lot that their opponents can do to them, whether that's missed economic opportunities, uh, 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 damage to their physical health, their families, even death. There's a wide range of potential evils that they could suffer at the hands of whoever is persecuting them. But Paul says, be not afraid. So what's the relationship between being not frightened and the situation being a sign? And I think the answer is simple. This persecution is no accident. It's no accident. This is not an out-of-control event where God's in heaven just sort of wringing his hands, wishing these mean people would leave his children alone. This was ordained by God. The persecution of the church at Philippi was ordained by God in order to make something clear to the world. God is showing the opponents of the gospel that they stand on the side of Satan and the kingdom of darkness. And God is showing the Philippians evidence of the realness of their faith through their perseverance in what they're suffering. The situation is totally within God's control. And it's all part of his plan. And Paul drives that point home super explicitly in verse 29. There he says, just as God gifted believing or faith to the Philippians, so too did he gift them this suffering for Christ. And gift is the right word. He has gifted them the privilege and encouragement of seeing their faith withstand the fire of persecution. There is nothing in this situation, as hard as it might be for them, that is not from the hand of a lovingly sovereign God, that's Paul's point in these two verses. And my friends, when we're going through something hard, regardless of what it is, knowing that God is in control, but kindly and graciously in control, it makes all the difference in the world, doesn't it? It's the difference between being unsure and anxious in the future and being able to sleep like a baby. It's the difference between suffering while suffering and being able to meet suffering with joy. God's gracious, sovereign control for someone who's undergoing a trial, it means that your circumstances are under control. Not yours, not yours, but under the control of someone infinitely greater and wiser who loves you with an unthinkable love. 
It means that whatever thing has befallen you, it can affect you no more than your loving Father allows it to. It means whatever you're suffering through, it exists for a gracious purpose in your life. It's not purposeless or random. It's happening for your good. It means that whatever evil thing has befallen you, the God who works it for your good is also sovereign over how you react to it. We can rest assured that we're not on our own, that we don't face these things under our own power. And it means whatever evil thing has befallen us, since God is in control, prayer is anything but empty talking. It's anything but empty talking. Prayer can work because God is sovereign. And so whether persecution or general run-of-the-mill pains in this life, even deep suffering, God wants us, like this church at Philippi, to remember that he is sovereign. That's the first help that we see in hard times that Paul repeatedly keeps driving back to in this chapter. But it isn't the only thing he wants us to remember, which brings us to help number two, the supremacy and sufficiency of Jesus. The supremacy and sufficiency of Jesus. That's the second thing that Paul emphasizes over and over and over again in this chapter. Paul wants the church that is suffering for Jesus, that is being persecuted because they are proclaiming Christ to a hostile world, to treasure Jesus with all their heart. And that just makes all sorts of sense, doesn't it? In the context of persecution, in the context of suffering for Christ, it is critical that we do not take our eyes off our Savior. When we preach Christ and a hostile world responds, we will shrink back if love for Jesus is not what motivates us to preach in the first place if it's not what drives us. So Paul rightly emphasizes the supremacy and sufficiency of Jesus Christ in this chapter over and over and over again. And we could look at all of them, but I'm going to limit myself to two tonight. Uh, disclaimer, first one's a little convoluted. Um, it's important, though, so it's, 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 it, but it's also difficult to wrap our heads around. But with that disclaimer, take a look at verse 8. And this is another one of those examples where Paul sort of twists the language in order to make a point but he says there, for God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. In this verse, Paul is simply telling this church that he yearns for them. He wants to be with them. He wishes to be there to see them. But again, listen to how he says it. How I yearn for you all with the affection of Jesus. Paul yearns with Jesus' affection odd, isn't it? It's a really odd way of, of saying that. It's such an unusual thing to say. Paul is yearning with Jesus's affection. He could have just said, I yearn for you with all my heart, but he doesn't. He frames it this way. And if we ask ourselves why he's framing it this way, aside from the, the simple answer that it's, it's, it's true, what he's doing here is he's pointing the church to Christ. He's pointing them to a reality that radically changes how we view our relationships in a local church. Paul is telling the church at Philippi that Paul's love for them is really a manifestation of Jesus' love for them. That Jesus' love is made manifest through Paul. And I know that's a mouthful of a sentence, so let's just quickly unpack that. Paul is, first and foremost, not saying that he loves this church with the same caliber of love that Jesus has. That's not his point. He's also not saying that he can somehow feel the feelings of Jesus. That's not his point. Nor is he merely saying that Jesus has caused Paul to feel his feelings. No, what Paul is expressing in this, in this little turn of phrase is the reality that Jesus' love for his sheep works through his sheep. 
In other words, every time we're encouraged by one another, every time we're edified by one another, every time we're supported or helped by one another, those things are manifestations of Jesus' covenant love for us being worked out through our brothers and sisters in Christ. Or to say it in another hopefully simpler way, when I'm struggling through something and a brother tenderly counsels me through it, that is the tender care of Jesus Christ working through that brother. And when I experience that kindness from that brother in my life, I should see the smiling face of my Savior. All of the good things, brothers and sisters, that we have in and through one another at River City Grace are tangible manifestations of Jesus' love for us. And that's what Paul wants the church at Philippi to see and recognize. Because again, he knows that um, uh, love for Jesus fuels faithfulness to Jesus. And so to encourage this church to stay faithful in believing and obeying and proclaiming Christ as they suffer for Christ, Paul wants to help them see every kindness they experience in the church for what it is, as if Jesus were doing it. That's what Paul is doing here in this very unexpected and kind of hard to understand phrasing in verse 8. He's leveraging the opportunity to point the church back to their supreme and sufficient Savior to spur their love for him. And verse 8 isn't the only place where Paul does this. He does this in verse 11. He does it in verse 18. But the chief place where he does it in chapter 1 is verses 18 to 24. And this is you know, the, the key passage in this book on the supremacy and sufficiency of Jesus. It may be the key passage in the New Testament, top five at a minimum. But verses 18 to 24, Paul says, Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, speaking of his, his imprisonment. Verse 20 says, As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Now, if I am to live on in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet, which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and to be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. I, I, I hope you, you heard it, but the supremacy of Jesus is everywhere in these verses. Starting in verse 20, there Paul makes it clear that his life's focus and ambition is honoring Jesus regardless of what happens to Paul in this life, whether he has plenty or he has lack, whether he lives, whether he dies, whether he's making a tent to support himself, proclaiming Jesus in the marketplace, Paul wants to see Jesus honored, period. Now, if I said, if I told you right now that my life's ambition were to, I don't know, make it so that everybody in the world honored Elon Musk, you would look at me like I'm absolutely nuts. Why? Because it's immediately apparent, immediately apparent, but that's stupid. The guy's not worth it. There is no cause, no band, no politician, no country, no loved one, no experience in this life that is worth that kind of devotion. Nothing except for Jesus Christ is worth the sort of love and devotion that it takes to say, it is my eager expectation and hope that Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or death, now as always. There is nothing in this world apart from Christ that is worth that sort of love and devotion. And since Jesus is worth it, Paul then doubles down on this radical focus on Jesus in verse 21. There, Paul says, to live is Christ. And that means exactly what it sounds like. Paul's worldview is really simple. It's all about Jesus. It is all about Jesus. Paul is so in love with Christ that his outlook on life is entirely Christocentric. 
Paul's a man who loves who Jesus is, who cares deeply about what Jesus has done and is doing in the world, and who lives in anticipation of what Jesus will yet do and what he's promised to do. In fact, Paul is so devoted to Jesus that he looks forward to death. Not only is it to live as Christ, but to die as gain. Losing out on whatever it is that he might lose out on, experiences, family, friends, food, riches, you name it, in death is better than living for Paul because death means going and being with Christ, which is what he says in verse 23. My desire is to depart and to be with Christ, for that is far better. And Paul is telling us in these words that death isn't gain because Paul avoids problems in this life, and he had a lot of problems. Death isn't gain because his aching body finally gets to stop bothering him, and at this point, Paul has suffered a lot. I'm sure he has a lot of permanent, ongoing physical issues. And death isn't gain because he's yearning to see someone in this life who died. Death is gain because it means being in the presence of the one to whom Paul is utterly devoted. Paul here in these verses in expressing his own mindset and focus is emphasizing the supremacy and sufficiency of Jesus. And this is the mindset that he is not just telling them about, but he wants them to adopt as well. It's the the mindset that he wants them to have. Because Paul's not expressing a personal opinion that's open to debate or interpretation. He is modeling the appropriate worldview, the appropriate value system that every single person in this world, if we were righteous, would have. It is right to have this sort of high view of Jesus, and we could, we could spend the rest of our time just looking at various passages in the New Testament that speak of Jesus in, in grand and exalting terms. Second uh, Corinthians one twenty: for as many as are the promises of God, in him they are yes. 1 Corinthians one thirty: and because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. Or as Pastor Greg's been preaching through in Colossians, uh, uh, chapter 2, verse 3, speaking of Christ, in whom are hidden all of the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Or chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, for in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. And we could keep going and going and going, but the point is, is that Jesus is everything. He is everything. And so the right way to live for any Christian is to cherish and delight and treasure above all else the infinite, eternal God who condescended to take on a human nature, who suffered innumerable indignities and rejections as a man, and who, when we hated him, when we deserved nothing short of infinite, eternal wrath, who loved us enough to stand in our place as a substitute bearing that awful wrath of God. Like Paul... To live as Christ and to die as gain should be written on our hearts and tattooed on our eyelids. And bringing this back to sort of the, the point and the title of this sermon, not only is this the right way to see the world in general, not only is this crucial, as we're, we're seeing as Paul making it clear for the, for the perseverance uh, when suffering for, for the gospel, but it's also crucial, I think, to successfully weather the difficulties that we can experience in life in a Christ-honoring way. If you were to have, say, lost all of your possessions in a fire or as the result of some crime, if to live as Christ and to die as gain is really written on your heart, what did you really lose if you didn't lose him? Or to take it another direction, how is it that someone can lose children or spouses and not entirely lose their mind, not entirely despair? 
And the simple answer is, no matter how much you rightly love the person you lost, we can survive that when our heart is anchored on Christ as our greatest treasure. The worldview that Paul is modeling in verses 18 to 24 puts all suffering in perspective, and it puts anything that we might lose in its proper place and station. And it also helps us endure trials in a godly way, because one of the fun realities of suffering in this life is it's not just the bad circumstance you're dealing with, but temptations usually come with it as well, don't they? And if comfort or success or family or safety is our treasure, or if these things meaningfully compete in our heart with Jesus to be our treasure, we're in danger. We are absolutely in danger. But if Jesus means more to us than what we stand to lose, if we find, then we will find the power to meet that hard time with joy, with hope, and with godly conduct. Now, for a church suffering persecution or for a Christian walking in the valley in life, we can and we must anchor ourselves not only in the sovereignty of God, the gracious sovereignty of God, but also in the sufficiency and supremacy of Jesus, which is really easy for me to say, and it's next to impossible for us to do on our own, which brings us to the third area of emphasis that we see in chapter one over and over and over again, specifically the support of the church, the support of the church. And like these other two areas of emphasis, Paul talks a lot about this, both explicitly and implicitly. He emphasizes the need for and importance of brothers and sisters in Christ living out our lives together. Again, even a cursory review of chapter 1, he keeps coming back to this theme. Uh, Take a look back at at verse 5. As we already noted, this is Paul thanking God for the partnership that this church has with him in the, the, uh, the Great Commission. But in in so doing, Paul also sort of tells us that that the Great Commission is not the work of the apostles. Uh, It's not the work solely of uh, specifically gifted evangelists. It is accomplished by the partnership of every believer in Christ working together in and through local churches. In verse 7, Paul specifically reflects on this church's support of him in his imprisonment. Uh, Paul's word, he's in chains. He's in chains, and he is likely dependent on the support of other Christians. He has real needs that this church has met that he probably on his own otherwise could not have met. Uh, in, uh, in verse 9, uh, there Paul tells the church that how he is praying for them, specifically for their, their growth and progress in the faith, which indicates to us that if we're going to progress in the faith and, and in sanctification, we need other brothers and sisters in Christ praying this way for us. Again, we can highlight more examples, but, but two other really quick ones. Skip down to verse 22. In that same to live as Christ and die as gain passage, right after expressing that death is gain in verse 21 and that he wants to go and be with Jesus in verse 23, Paul also says that he is going back and forth in his mind over whether it would be better to stay or depart. Leaving for Paul or dying means being with Jesus. Staying, he says, living means supporting the churches, working for their good, working for fruit. And Paul tells the church, despite the fact that for him to, to, to go and be with Christ is far better personally, he is vacillating between those two in terms of what he ultimately prefers. I think there's a number of reasons why, why Paul shares this, but one of them, uh, one of the reasons why he, he kind of goes through this inner monologue that he's having is to show them the priority of serving the church even over our own preferences and wants. And then in verse 27, 
in uh, kind of the, the first main practical exhortation in this chapter, Paul tells this persecuted church that their job in persecution is to come together and to lean in to the proclamation and defense of the gospel. That's what he means when he says, standing firm in one spirit and with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. He wants them to see that unity and love Alignment and purpose and meaningful fellowship are expectations of all believers, and especially so when times are hard. So, again, you see it kind of baked into chapter 1 over and over and over again. Paul is clearly emphasizing the necessity and importance of the support of the church and the Christian life. And like the other two helps in hard times, it's kind of easy, I trust, to see why Paul might be emphasizing this. First, because we desperately need each other in general. We have a charge, as I mentioned, the Great Commission, that we cannot complete on our own. We also have personal needs, our sanctification, the deepening of our faith in Christ. And we need the encouragement, the the, the practical exhortations in truth, prayers, and corrections of our brothers and sisters in Christ to actually achieve that. Christianity is not a solo sport. It's a team game. But... Paul also emphasizes the support of the church in chapter 1 because we desperately need each other all the more when we're going through hard times. I mean, think about it just in the context of of practical needs in this church. How many young parents in this church would be hard-pressed to meet their children's needs if it wasn't for the gracious outpouring of love and, and baby showers? How many of us would be worse off, physically or spiritually, without the prayers of our brothers and sisters in Christ? How many families, either suffering losses or recovering from physical ailments, have depended on the kindness of the meal ministries of this church? How many in this room could raise your hand and say you've benefited from wise counsel or a hard word in a family situation or a broken relationship, problems at work, or the like? The local church is a protection for us. It is the engine that powers the Great Commission. It is the means God uses for our personal growth, and it is the support system for us in difficult circumstances. And it, like the sovereignty of God and the supremacy and sufficiency of Jesus, is the third reality that we must lean into, not only at all times, but especially in hard times. So these three helps Paul over and over and over again is is drawing the church's attention to in chapter 1. And brothers and sisters, as we wrap up our time tonight, I hope what I've tried to accomplish is clear, and I certainly hope it was helpful. But speaking to a church undergoing persecution in a thank you note for their support of Paul in his own persecution, Paul emphasizes, and sometimes, as we saw, goes out of his way to do so, three realities that provide comfort, support, and produce faithfulness in Christians. And these three realities, the, the, sovereignty, the gracious sovereignty of God, the supremacy and sufficiency of Jesus, and the support of the church should be the pillars that we lean in on in our lives. And I certainly pray that God makes it so more and more until he returns. So let's, let's ask him to do exactly that. Oh, Lord, you are gracious. You are in control In Jesus Christ, we have everything that we need, not just for our salvation, but our purpose, our fulfillment, and our joy. We have a a 
role in what you're doing in the world that can be consuming for our lives, whether we are on the front lines preaching, whether we're supporting in, in other ways, whether that's uh, through, through secular employment or, 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 or taking care of children. It, regardless of what we're doing, Lord, we have a, a role and a place in that mission, and we can find fulfillment and purpose and participating in what you're doing in the world. And we have a a community in our brothers and sisters in Christ, Lord, that you have given us and you are working in and through that we can rejoice in and and take comfort in and participate in, Lord. And I just pray that these three realities would be fuel for our hearts, Lord, that we would see the effort that the Holy Spirit through Paul went to, Lord, to bring these truths out and that we would anchor ourselves both in good times and in bad times, in your gracious sovereignty, in the supremacy of Jesus Christ, and in the necessity of the support of the church. And we ask you, Lord, for these things in our lives in Jesus' name. Amen.